And this welcome. meeting is being recorded. <laughs> uh, yes, it is. I guess it's recording now. We can take that note that it's recording. <laughs> and this is another episode of No More Conversations. And I'm joined by my old buddy, Dan Aho. Hey, Dan. Hello, everyone. <laughs> I'm good. How are you? Good, man. Uh, it's been some years since we got to catch up. We had some good times during the David Barton days. Yeah. Uh, you know, I perfected your jump shot, told you to get that elbow in, schooled you a few times, but eventually you got to be pretty decent. I, I learned a lot from you and, you know, it, it takes a lot to, uh, beat the teacher. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to be kind cause it's your podcast. You know, well, I'll start my podcast. wanted to bring you on and tell you the truth of our basketball days. And it's just going to be one episode. And that's the only episode I'll have on my podcast is me just telling the truth. <clears throat> Great. I'm looking forward to it. Please just, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Just let me know when it gets released. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So you are an actor and how long have you been acting? <sighs> I mean, haven't we all been acting since the day we were born to oh. a certain degree? Right. Oh, right? Yeah, we're going way back. We're going. Uh, but no, I really, really started acting when I was in uh, college. That's when I started studying acting. Okay. And what led you to it? it? The comedy and acting was always something I was really, really interested in. But I grew up in a really small town in a real rural area. So it just never felt like, oh, that's a job that people have your brain just doesn't compute when you watch TV or movies. And so I never thought that that was an available thing to do. And then once I got older and the world got a little bit smaller with technology and everything, I was like, oh, wait, people can study this and do this. And so uh, I quietly went off and started to, to study it, uh, much to the minor chagrin of my family. But uh, here I am. 20 some years later. Okay. So a vet in the game and it's safe to say that it is one of if not the passions of your life yeah yeah i mean outside of uh, you know people talk about loves of your life which i tend not to include people because they have to love you back where you can love basketball or uh, acting or entertaining and you still love them and they don't give you much back sometimes you know That's whereas if it was a person they would be like i'm gonna go over he- bye so yeah one sure. of the passions one of the passions and basketball is your other passion basketball is another passion of mine yeah basketball playing watching the basketball culture of it yeah all of it so would you say that one passion is higher than the other between basketball and acting or are they about even killed i mean i think the pinnacle of it all is space jam isn't it i mean basketball and acting together that's that's the goal right yeah um, no, um, <laughs> I've had to retire from playing basketball. So that's a, that's a major, uh, yeah. I'm oh, a very old man now. Problem? The knees still giving you problems? Is that what yeah, All of my knees have given me problems. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, sorry. I, I never, we played enough where you probably noticed I didn't play for my long-term health very much. It was a hundred percent all the time. And that's so, how you got to do it. There's no other way. Yeah two knee surgeries and 42 years of age. And it was like, and a one year long pandemic being stuck indoors. And I was like, it's, it's done. It's done. And you've made peace with that. Or do you scratch that itch in other ways going to the arcade perhaps? I don't know. Yeah. I don't think anyone who's ever, 
you know, not gotten their full uh, piece of pie and anything like basketball. Like I never felt fulfilled with what my uh, basketball abilities were. So they'll never, that'll never go away. Okay. But you hear like NBA players who played for obviously 15 years and every single day and it became an actual job. And they're like, I'm never going to touch a basketball again. And like, I kind of get that, but also it's like, man, I can't, I don't get that at all. Right. I play a lot of 2k. I played too much 2k, which is a basketball video game. NBA 2K. Yeah, I don't think I've ever played it. I've heard of it. I've seen advertisements for it. Never actually played it. I wasn't really too good at it. Yeah, neither am I, but it scratches that itch, as you said. Fair, fair. Okay, so so I was talking to our mutual friend, Rick Fitz, about um, acting, and I told him that I was having... Uh, a bit of a challenge with my personal engagement in movies and media. And I said that I'm constantly feeling manipulated. I can't tell if that I'm reacting, if I'm reacting to the music in the movie, the actual acting or something else that's been orchestrated by the production team. And he said very blatantly to me, he said, yes, you are being manipulated. He said, but the less you feel the manipulation, the more the story resonates with you or your story. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I agree with that. I mean, the world of TV and movies and acting is so broad and vast, especially now with so many more streamers and places to watch and so many more places producing. Like I've stopped watching for the most part, most of broadcast TV because of that, because they're just you know, the old idea that they're just selling soap, which to a certain degree is true. Like going from the production, the writing to the performing, it's all sort of contrived. Um, I've kind of fallen into uh, having another passion for film and cinema, um, really pushing hard into the cinema side, which does feel less like you're being manipulated and more of a a expression uh, and a, a slice of life and showing you what this particular person or this particular scenario uh, their life is like, which gives you the ability to, to learn a little bit more about yourself sometimes or, or people or certain aspects of the world or certain aspects of the country or certain aspects of economics. That's the part that kind of interests me the most. Um, And so you're saying that, and when you say broadcast, do you mean like, uh, live tv or what exactly are you coupling under the broadcast umbrella broadcast like abc nbc uh cbs sort of stuff okay so even the shows on there i've rarely ever watched sometimes i'll watch take a peek at what's like what's going on watch one episode but even i've stopped doing most of that because it's like that's just not for me anymore um certainly as an actor as like a part of the business i've done a handful of those shows and they've been fun and i've enjoyed some of the people but i don't think i watched more than three episodes of any show that i've even been on just to know like the style uh the pace of it and things like that so you've been and i'll a- name names i will say names you tell me what show i'll tell you i'll tell you it's mom on cbs okay i don't watch it i don't know <laughs> I'm assuming Chuck Lorre listens to this, and now there's going to be a war between me and him. Bring it on, Chuck Lorre. Who's Chuck Lorre? I feel like I did. He did he go to the gym too? Was he a gym member? Oh, he may have been way back when. There was a lot of famous people at that gym years ago. Um, but no, he created like two. 
He's a very famous TV creator. Yeah. Oh, Chuck Lorre. Okay. So, but you've been in the game so long that you can now see and feel the differences between what's on broadcast television and then what's um, non-broadcast. Is that how we, or studio productions? Is that what do we, I don't know. How do you? Yeah. Like uh, for instance, like back in the day, HBO was considered premium TV. So mm-hmm. they would, they would take more time with, they would, they would have a cinematic feel. Um, the production style was way different. There would be more money per episode. They would get better writers. They would let creative people say, here, here's your show. Give us eight episodes, go off and do it. We're not going to give you notes or tell you that you have to put a Chevy in the episode four, which is like, if, if I'm working on the show and the network says you have to put a Chevy in episode four and be like, what, why do I have to do that? It's a show about, I don't know, going to the doctor and someone has cancer and we have to be in a Chevy for it. Get the fuck out of here. Can I swear? <laughs> can I say the F word? You can say as many F words as you want. Fuck, 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 fuck. And Good. fuck. There we go. Yes. Just to put the period yeah. on it. <laughs> and that that is really interesting. So I'm, I'm curious, when you're watching a, a movie, are you able to still get lost in it? Or are you looking constantly noticing the technical details of the film? Usually the first time I'm, I, I can pretty easily be sucked into any movie unless it's so bad that there's things that are just jarring and you're like uh, i'm no longer in this movie like whatever you're watching you have to buy into whatever reality they're creating right like whatever world whatever context you have to buy into that but if there's something that breaks that reality then you're like what's going on that doesn't make sense to me and then if it keeps doing it you're like i don't want to watch this anymore because it's just not consistent creatively or texturally for whatever they were trying to do fair huh okay so i'm curious um two similar but separate questions what do you think is the best technical movie of the past five years whoa uh that's a tough question um always uh technical I mean, I don't know. I'm not super technical. That's the side I'm, I'm learning more and more about the directorial and cinematography side of it. But uh, the movie that just popped in my head was a movie Parasite, um, which was a, a South Korean director, Bong Joon-ho. And it was it's kind of his first breakout movie here, even though a lot of people knew him, but it won the Oscar and it was a foreign language movie, which a lot of people just don't like reading while they watch movies, which mm-hmm. doesn't make sense for a visual medium, but I get it. Um, I just thought that that was such a well-crafted movie to kind of, uh, work in a lot of different places because it had this Hitchcockian feel, but there was comedy and it was authentically, uh, South Korean as well. And it tackled a lot of issues in terms of, uh, economic structure, people living in these mansions and the people that I don't want to spoil the movie for you, if you haven't seen it or anybody, but who people who literally live below (laughs) in, in a basement, Okay. Mm, okay. I think that's a very good movie. But I don't know why that popped in my head. If I sat around and thought about it for 20 minutes, I'd probably come up with a bunch of other movies as well. And that movie was done well just because of the, the amount of scrutiny he put on, I guess, maybe researching those uh, problems in that society or the cinematography. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the best movies, I think all of us living life realize how complex life can be in any given afternoon, in any given hour, in any given year, in any given lifetime. And oftentimes movies or something will only only do comedy or only do drama. And I just don't think that's how life is. And I think Parasite was a movie that did a lot of things seamlessly. Like you don't see the seams. You don't have those moments where you're like, what's going on? You're not jarred out of it. It was just seamless for the amount of things that it talked about and it attacked and also just lighthearted comedy moments, which, you know, if, you, if anyone, if you've ever been in a funeral and someone farted, it's funny. It's just funny. I, haven't, you know? I have not been yeah. at a funeral and somebody farted. Bring a fart machine next time you're in a funeral. Everyone, everyone will appreciate it. I will. Except uh, for the person that's dead. Well, they're not going to care. They're, they're just not going to care. So no one's going to care. Fair. And so something that I've been fascinated with, even though I do feel manipulated or feel like, you know, the production team and the actors are trying to manipulate me, there is something I appreciate about uh, the level of research that they do in paying attention to what feels real and what the audience is going to respond to. It's like phenomenal. It's like if the average individual would put a fraction of that effort into understanding their personal story, like what that could do for the individual. Cause I think there's, I think, I think every person to me is more entertaining than a movie that I go and watch. It's like, there's a story inside of everyone. It's just about like figuring out what it is. Yeah. Um, it's, it's much, it's it, editing is very hard. So you're right. And, and people are much more interesting, but people are horrible editors of themselves. <laughs> You know, it could, it could take you six to eight hours talking to me and finding three interesting stories, whereas a really good writer could do that in a 30 minute episode of TV. So what you're saying is like, people are really bad editors of themselves and editing is supposed to pull the highlights out better, more effectively. Like if you watch a movie, like I think the movie Parasite, let's use that example. I think that may take place over two or three months, if not longer, but it's a two hour movie. So it's really hard to be like, all right, there's this situation that happened in two or three months. We can't chew a documentary and have someone watch it for two or three months. We got to edit it down to what's the kernel of the story or their inspiration or the interesting things. And that's, it's really hard. It's really, really hard. Mm. And that's why you get a lot of shit that you feel manipulated by, or sometimes that's its only, only job is to manipulate you. Um, mm. what's that show on NBC, This Is Us or something like that, where yeah. it just seems like our job is to make you cry every episode. <laughs> you know? Okay. It's like, eh. Got it. The, that's, some of the actors and stuff are great and the writers are great, but that's just that, that's that, that style of show. That's what its job is. And some people love that. That's just not for me. Got it. Because it's like you feel it too often. It's like, okay, they're trying too hard to pull out these emotions every single episode. Is that what that is? Yeah. A little melodramatic, and like you said, like the music that's one thing that always bothers me is like usually if you're watching a good scene with good actors with good writing, you don't need any music, like you right. get it. I don't need the music to be like, You're sad now, you know, I don't need that, <laughs> right? That's exactly what's happening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> something dangerous is about to happen. It's like, No, let me figure that out on my own. <laughs> Completely agree. That is that is the best analogy of what the music is doing. <laughs> Or the worst of all, the worst of all is laugh tracks. Laugh tracks, when which they... is fake laughter put oh, on a game lot shows of and stuff, or 
Well, a lot of TV shows do it. Yeah. A lot of sitcoms have the laugh tracks. Okay. So if you were um, writing or producing, I'm not sure exactly what the difference is, but actually, yeah, actually, that's probably a good point. Can we distinguish between the difference between like writing? Because obviously writing is the script and like producing. Producing is going to take a couple of weeks for us to talk about, to figure out what it is. Um, A lot of research producing i don't know that producing can cover so many different things from being someone who takes someone's script who's like i like this can i show it to someone i know that has a production company and all of a sudden that person who just took the script and brought it here is like i'm also a producer and like what? okay and then the producer could be like the person getting all the money together or the person getting the all the creative teams together or the person that's on set every day dealing with all the logistics it covers a lot of different things that even someone who's probably been here in this industry for 30 years is like, yeah, I don't really know what a producer does. Okay, <laughs> good to know. On every project. <laughs> but everybody wants to wear a producer hat. I, I've, yes. I've noticed it's like they yes. want that label of producer. Cause what, is it, what does that do? Cause I, I was watching, um, there's um, a conversation, something, one of my guilty pleasures, it's like the, uh, the Hollywood Red Round Table. Mm, yeah, those are great. Yeah, yeah, those are great because it's like you're seeing. I think those are absolutely magnificent. Um, and actually, I was listening to somebody who said like they had a favorite actor, but they didn't like them when they met them in person. But I really like the Hollywood roundtables because it's like you just have a a set of actors or actresses, and they're talking to each other, and you can tell that they're opening up a little more because like yeah. I, I find it. I'm always like second my second guessing myself when I'm seeing an actor talk to a reporter or talking to an audience of people. It's like how much of this is just polished training and how much of it is real. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the red carpet stuff is all like part of their job and going on talk shows. And I mean, some, some of the people are wonderfully entertaining on talk shows, but they're far and few in between. But um, there's this weird balance of you know, actors like talking about acting because it's what they've studied and they take it very seriously. But then there's also this part where, yeah, it's, you don't want to let people in too much to see how the sausage gets made because it is a very personal and vulnerable thing sometimes because depending on what project you're doing or what role you're doing, you really have to dig deep into some dark places of yourself sometimes or really confront sadness or loss or things like that and it it, it kind of sometimes does feel uh, tiring or exhausting at least emotionally not to the aspect of you know not pouring concrete for 12 hours a day but sitting down writing an experience that's somehow you have to tap into a place in yourself that you're calling on losing a parent or something to try to understand what this made-up person is going through um, and it gets a little weird. It kind of gets a little weird. But those Hollywood roundtables—they do a pretty good job at, you know, kind of explaining their processes and what they enjoyed about projects. And mm-hmm. it's not something that you get on a lot of these shows, right? I, and I think that's what it is. Why it feels a little more real because you can kind of tell when uh, actors, or at least I have been kind of able to notice when actors are breaking character when they're not on a movie and like when they're engaging real, like when they're, when they're in a room full of their counterparts, it's almost like they know that they can't fool the person across from them because they're all doing the same thing. So it's like, they're more willing to be a little vulnerable with how they feel about things. And obviously the vets, they have less 
um, care about how people perceive them because their name is already established in the books. So usually it's the vets that kind of opened up a little more, which gives the other actors in the room permission to open up yeah. and be a little more vulnerable. And it's kind of nice to see that break down. Um, yeah. There is a um, there is an episode of David Letterman's My Next Guest. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that at all? I've seen all of them. I love Letterman. Yeah, he does a great job. He does a great job, and he's doing it his way now. It's not like he's doing the the you know the slapstick comedy anymore. He's like, no, this is what I'm interested in, and we're going to do it my way. And it just feels yeah. really authentic. Um, but there's an uh, Kim Kardashian's episode. It's like she is a production. Like she's always in character. You know, and I think that's probably largely due to the mom coaching them on like how they should be presenting themselves. Mom does a great job in just building that empire. But there's a there's a moment in that episode where Kim breaks character. You can tell like she's doesn't care about the cameras, she doesn't care about the image, and she is just being herself. Do you know what it is or that I'm thinking about? I don't remember that. It probably seemed so brief to me that I saw a real human there that I might have forgotten it, but refresh my memory. <laughs> they David Letterman goes with her into like a CVS. I don't know why they're there, but they go in a CVS and they get to the pin aisle. And as soon as they get to the pins, Kim's character just falls away and she is just obsessed with like pins and choosing the right pin. And she she's in this probably like, ten thousand twenty thousand dollar skirt and she just drops to the floor gets the pins and just starts writing and i was like oh wow there's kim that's yeah. what gets her excited that's fascinating um so along that same train of thought who do you think is the best actor that's still working right now actor actress uh Again, that's tough to do off the top of my head. The, the, I mean, the go-to, and I think kind of everyone's sort of, maybe not personal pinnacle, but like everyone's like, yeah, that that person there. I think there's two. Um, uh, Meryl Streep is one. Uh, and I think Daniel Day-Lewis is another. Uh, those are just the, the top of my head. I could come up with a, a bunch more as well. But just the work that Daniel Day-Lewis does, it's very old school and it's no longer... You know, to a certain degree, everyone's pressured now to be on Instagram and have a following. And I've heard people not get auditions because they didn't have enough followers, which is bananas to me. But um, oh, wow. Yeah. Which also in the same time where we all know that followers can be faked and bought. So it yeah. never makes any sense to me. And also, who's going to if, if someone's just scrolling past your feed, who's going to sit down and be like, oh, I'm going to watch a 30 minute TV episode of that person in because they don't really watch. You're not really invested in anybody. But anyway, um, yeah, Danny Day-Lewis for what he does, like he, he, most of the time he's in character the whole time. He spends a lot of time creating these characters and working with the director. And he's just, uh, he's a fascinating creature. Daniel Day-Lewis, because I, he, he was uh, Lincoln, right? He was Lincoln, uh, There Will Be Blood, The Master, um, uh, My Left Foot, a movie back from the 90s about an Irish writer uh, in the name of the father, another one. He plays a Northern Irish gentleman. Um, but yeah, I think with anything that you do that you like, you have to be committed to it, right? That's mm -hmm. the kind of the purpose of doing anything. And that's why essentially we're playing pretend. And so it goes back to when you were a kid, kids you like to play with were the kids that were fun to play with, which meant they, you know, to a certain degree, they took it seriously being playing basketball or 
playing outdoors and he takes it very seriously and he's committed to it and he does a very good job. Mm, okay. I'm going to be paying attention to Daniel Day-Lewis next time I get the opportunity to come across one of his uh, movies. Yeah. Um, do you have a particular style of acting that you enjoy most? I would assume comedy, but I don't know. Yeah, I think no matter what I do, I try to, if I'm able to choose, I put a little bit of comedy in it. I love comedy the most, but like I said, I think uh, life has so many different shades. And so I think creatively having a comedy and drama and the same thing I think is interesting um, because I think that's how most of my day is internal and maybe more comedy and the drama's happening outside or I'm saying things in my head that I can't say outside. But as I grow older, I think that's becoming less and less because I just don't give a shit. Um, but yeah, comedy little with a little bit of drama in it is kind of my uh, go-to. I spent a lot of the time of the last year being stuck indoors writing stuff. And that's kind of that mix of those two is what I really enjoy. Is there... What, what, do you, what do you think is the hardest part about writing comedy or drama? I don't know if it's something it's different for th those two genres or if there's just one thing that's uh, the most difficult for you when you're writing those, those things. I think the thing that you're always chasing is finding truth is with whatever story you're trying to tell and with, a, with every single character as well as trying to find the truth of the matter. Um, a lot of the stories and scripts and TV shows that we watch are contrived. They're put together by a formula almost, which even when you send out scripts for people to read, they're like, no, this should happen on page 15. And then this should happen on page 30. And then page four. And like, I get it. I get how stories are told, but to have it that structured, it just takes away the, the human spirit of it. But uh, yeah, finding the truth. Cause if something's not true, you feel it. Right. That's when you're like, yeah, I don't like this show anymore. Or, what happened there if it's not true? True to the moment, true to the character, true to the story that you're trying to tell or whatever you're trying to express to the audience. Right, right. Finding the truth. And you think um, finding the truth can best be determined by, as far as movies are concerned, finding the truth can best be determined by how you feel as the creator or as the audience? As the, well, maybe both or. Yeah. yeah, as the creator, like for me, I never really know what I'm gonna be writing next. I usually have three or four things and whatever kind of takes the lead is what I'll just let, I'll start writing more. Um, with the audience, that's a little tougher because if you go into something with preconceived notions or a desire to feel a certain way, you may get surprised and not enjoy yourself. Um, that's why I always think it's important, especially when I go to the theater to be like void of any noise that's happening in the world with reviews or so-and-so's dating someone. It's like, I don't care. I just want to go watch the Brad Pitt movie and just enjoy it as a movie and then come out and uh, think about it more. Um, so in the audience, it's tough, but as a creator, you kind of have to have a focus of what you're trying to say or, or what you're trying to tell. So switching gears here, since you're extra constantly exercising this muscle of finding truth in your writing, do you also find it easier to find truth in the age of fake news? 
Um, I mean, facts aren't hard to <laughs> to to find, really, for the most part. I mean, there's a lot of minutia in the world and a lot of gray area, but I don't know. In the last four or five years, it doesn't seem particularly hard. More more than it was before. It's pretty easy to see that Donald Trump and all of his people are large pieces of shit that have no interest in government uh, or being truthful or uh, caring for anybody but themselves. That's not hard for me. I think the difficult thing is uh, that news and journalism has become a business and that's that's a particular slide that's gonna be hard to come back from. I can't really tell, but it seems like there's some, you feel some type of way about the Trump administration and his minions. Yeah, I kind of just, I have the feeling like I don't like them. Like I, I kind of have the feeling like if a bunch of people should just be struck down by a being above us, it should be all of them. And like, we should never see them and they should go through painful deaths on the toilet alone. Is okay. that what you're looking for? Uh, that was a little more clear. Thank you. Yeah. Like I want them to all shit out their intestines on the toilet and uh, slowly die like it's a Saw movie. Is that too graphic? I, I don't think so. I think it was probably right on, you okay. know, I think it was about right on. And, and on that note, outside of just the Trump, like, what do you think of the state of the world? Any broad general thoughts? Because I guess I really wanted to talk to you about this because we, you suggested that I read that book, uh, a people's history of the United States. Yeah. Howard Zinn. Yep. Yep. That one, that was, um, really opening to me as I, as I told you, uh, I, I read some of that book and I was like, okay, wow. I should stop believing this stuff that I was taught in grade school. Um, you know, the one that sticks out most is obviously the, uh, the story of Christopher Columbus and who he was and how he operated. Um, 100% Trump supporter. 100% Christopher Columbus. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, definitely. <laughs> he, he funded probably most of the campaign. He would if he was yeah. around. Yeah. Um, so what what are your thoughts for the state of our country right now? I don't know. It's, it, it, it's always been troubled. I think that's what people don't really think about or talk about. Every generation has its troubles. I think we have so much more information at us now currently in terms of news, fake news, places where we get our news, more stories, more people trying to motivate you by scaring you or make you listen by scaring you. Um, but it's certainly, it's certainly troubled in different facets than it was before. I mean, I don't think our, uh, uh, government has been great ever. I don't think it's been like, good job, everybody. Good job, white guys. And even as we've uh, broadened our politics, it's still about money. It really is. And I don't know how we get rid of that without the people that are deciding that it's about money are the people that are getting the money. So it's a real, I think that's the definition of a catch 22. I don't know if I'm wrong, um, but it's certainly certainly worrying that we may not have a democracy if things keep sliding or less of a democracy than we had because it certainly hasn't been a democracy for the last 400 plus years. So, and by democracy, you mean? 
everything's fair and everyone has a chance and opportunity. That doesn't feel, yeah, that doesn't feel like we've ever had that. No, we've never had that. No. <laughs> and there's certain aspects that have certainly gotten better. That's undeniable. Like mm-hmm. the way that the, the country, it's a slow baby steps progressing with race or sexism or things like that. It's really baby steps. But even in my generation, my lifetime, it, it feels like it's gotten better not for everybody, not good enough, but, and that's no way to be like, all right, things have gotten better. Now let's sit back and relax. No, fuck that. But it's still fucked up, really fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And we certainly see more stories. Like I think back to the, the Rodney King video, like how much of a world opening that thing was. And then now we're like, oh yeah, there's just more cameras now. Yeah. Everyone has cameras. It's not like, mm-hmm. oh, this is happening a lot now. It's like, no, we have fucking cameras. Yeah, it's not. I don't think it's any. It's always been like this. They're like, yeah. not too much has changed just now that everyone has a camera. And then we had a year to sit at home and we're forced to pay attention to these things. And I think that's kind of the catalyst for this awakening that seems to be yeah. happening in this country right now. And it's having conversations. Like, I remember always, even when I was growing up, the old thing was, you never talk about religion, money, or politics. This is the kind of like what your parents would tell you. And they, to a certain degree, that's kind of true because if you're in mixed company or something, you could offend someone or someone doesn't want to talk about it. But I don't think we learn anything by not talking about those things. Like for me, growing up in a rural area with mostly white people, a lot of Native Americans there, but I didn't know any of the experience of anything besides of what I had or what my parents had and I remember that one conversation I had with our old mutual friend John Webb at the gym is was his experience when he said when he would get pulled over he said I would take out my wallet I would take out my keys I would put them both on the dash and put my hands on the dash and I was like what and that's it that never crossed my mind and like as much as white people are scared to talk about like their privilege, even if they know it happens or not, that, that that's a privilege that I, if I get pulled over for the, you know, if I was 26, 27 at that time, never crossed my mind. Mm-hmm. It's like the more details we can get in terms of the world through Howard Zinn's book or through talking with people, I think it benefits us to have an understanding. And I think that's kind of the slow progression that we're having with those baby steps. But then there's just a tons of people that are just like, I don't want to listen to you. Yeah, I think that's most people. They they don't want to listen to anything that's uncomfortable. Yeah, for sure. Um, going back to Howard Zinn's book, so that was the Christopher Columbus thing was the thing that stood out to me most. What was the most important thing you think you got from that book? I mean, I think just in general, it's a big book. That's a lot of book there. I it's think it's just the. I think I've always been kind of more implied to ask questions or ask why. And so even in school, I was like, I'm not taking my history classes too seriously because it always felt like it was always propaganda to a certain degree, especially USA is the best and we won World War II and always constantly making jokes about how we saved the French and the French owe us. And like, what is this? What's going on? Um, so it's just the importance of details and asking more questions and looking for more answers on things. Like I'm sure there's pro- there's things that are in that book that people have problems with, or maybe is shown not to be as accurate as it once was, but it's a pretty detailed book. And it 
paints a really good picture of our history, the good, the bad, and the ugly, mostly ugly, unfortunately. And I think that's kind of, you know, not pulling any specific thing from that book, but overall is you need to find more, uh, you need to find more details about the world and about life. And so I've kind of tried to keep that with um, reading books about things I don't know about, which is a lot. There's a lot I don't know. I don't know anything really. And so it's a real uphill battle. That's most, I mean, that's, that's what the beginning of knowledge, right? Is to realize that, you know, next to nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating. There's just so much information out there. Um, like I don't even really watch the news anymore. Um, I, I'm, I don't see a reason to, obviously I want to know the big, the big things that are happening. So, I mean, I follow a couple of news pages um, on my phone, but like just, I don't need that constant anxiety, you know, trying to shape uh, your behavior based off of fear, you know, instilling yeah. fear into the audiences, like you said, it seems to be one of the primary motives now. Um, so I don't, uh, I try not to involve myself with that. Yeah. Or they're just marketing to what people want to watch, you know? Right. Right. Like that, that seems like, it seems like what CNN is like, I, I think it, you, people like to compare them in Fox news, which Fox news is propaganda and they're blatantly lying to you and telling you horseshit. Or I think CNN is just really fucking lazy with their journalism. The one person I like on there is uh, Jake Tapper. He does a pretty good program where it tries to do more stories than like, what's the latest thing that Trump said or oh, gun violence in the Florida. I'm like, I, I get it. I don't need to know every time someone shoots a gun in America. Cause it's a lot. Right. Um, not to diminish people dying by firearms, but it just seems like Jeremy bought a gun in North Carolina. I was like, why am I, why are you doing a story on Jeremy buying a gun? Right. He hasn't bought bullets yet. It's silver and it's shiny. And he seems like he has mental problems coming up at six. Like, come on, <laughs> give me some actual news of the world. Exactly. AP news is the one that I kind of go to because it's kind of has the reputation for being nonpartisan and being like, we're just news. It's really boring, but it's just news. Mm, okay. I'll, I'll that keep that. I'll probably all. follow, try to follow the AP news on my IG feed. Cause that's what I'm looking for. Just the news. I just want just the facts. Um, yeah. And it's always befuddled me on how these news stations can tell blatant lies and not have to uh, account for it or pay for it. Um, Cause isn't yeah. that called like libel when a person does it against another person? I forget the, the piece of legislation that, that, came across i mean i could probably look it up here in google but i think it happened during the reagan administration where basically legislation was passed that you can no longer go after news organizations for basically telling lies or blatant lies uh which is kind of and then immediately i think three or four years after that is when fox news sprouted up and clearly that's what fox news is like they're being sued and even in court they're saying we're not journalists these are just talk shows and people are saying their opinion <laughs> it's like tucker carlson tucker carlson isn't a journalist He's a spoiled guy that doesn't have a chin. He wore bow ties for a long time. We don't know why. We never really asked. He's got a weird haircut. He makes weird faces. But we're telling you right now, he's just not a journalist. Is, is that what's, what's happening right now? There was a piece of legislation that said you can't go after them. And then in court, they're like, yeah, we're not really. Is that really what's happening? There was a large separation in time. But yeah, in, in the 80s, 
again, I'm not giving really detailed information here. Um, but yeah, there was a piece of legislation that passed somewhere in the late 80s. I believe it was during the Reagan administration, which led us to where we are now. We're literally in court just in the last year where Tucker Carlson and his show got sued. Fox News lawyers were like, yeah, no, this isn't really news. And it was out there and, and yeah. everyone knew it. But then people are still watching. People in my fucking family are still watching Fox News. Wow. And it's just like, what's what, don't you have anything else that you can do? Can you make a quilt or make a bird box? Anything, please, for the love of God, stop. Wow. It's crazy. Okay. I didn't know that was even out there. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. And you're right. People just ignore that and they continue believing what they want to believe. Yeah, because I don't know if it's what they want to hear or if it feeds into, I don't know. Why do people fear immigrants? I don't, it just doesn't make any sense. People like to be scared or like to feel, I don't, I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. No, no leading theories on why you think that is on why people are so scared. I mean, people can, dumb people can be really manipulated easily. I mean, we're all manipulated easily. You don't want to see my closet with how many pairs of Jordans and Nike shoes I have. So I can't really <laughs> be like, I'm, I'm an individual. I don't. Uh, I'm not a sucker for advertisement or being manipulated by a basketball player that tells me to buy his shoes. That's not me. So that is me. But, and I have to quarrel with the fact that these shoes are made in China and like, there's, you're making a decision all the time, but it's another thing to be so empty headed to have your brain filled with whatever voice is telling you these things. And if you only listen to one voice well, you're going to end up believing a lot of things that that one voice says. Right. Very and I think that's what's happening with a lot of people. And they're, and, and they're just like, make sure you watch at five at six and seven. And you wake up in the morning and watch us in the morning. Cause we have all the news that you need. And it's, you need to know it now because they're coming for your guns. You know, <laughs> it's like, all right. I, I grew up with guns. We had guns. No one ever came with them. We should have probably had them locked up better, but come on, no one's coming for your guns, except those stupid ones that you don't need. Right. Right. So, so you're basically saying nobody needs a, an assault rifle. No one needs an assault rifle. I grew up around bears, bobcats. What are you going to do with an assault rifle? There's not a gang of bobcats. They're going to come in your backyard. You're not going to all of a sudden wake up in the morning and there's 50 bobcats and they're like, give us your chicken. And we're like, <laughs> well, I have an AR-15, so let's do this. Like, that's just not happening. Right. Right. It's just so. completely unnecessary in, in my opinion as well. Um, yeah. and, and just so I'm clear, how many pairs of Jordans do you have? Well, I've had, I've sold some, like I've gone, I think that was, if I had to identify my midlife crisis, that was part of it, um, which isn't bad, right? That's not bad. Absolutely not, um, no. I think at the, I think shoes total, I probably have 30-ish, 40 or so maybe. It's a lot. Which is, it's a lot. That's more feet than I have, but um, mo people have way more. They do. So a lot that's of my justification. Have. I've most of my female friends, they will say they have at least a hundred. Yeah. Yeah. Which and the sneaker culture thing. is just is kind of blown blown up in the last handful of years. And like I think we're pretty close in age, right? Five, six ish, seven ish years. Yep. So we kind of came up when sneaker culture like became a thing. Like Jordan in the nineties. We did, we did, but I never really understood it. I've had no. one pair of Jordans that was given to me 
Uh, so it was never like, I never really uh, understood it, but I was never one to like really be a watcher of sports. I was always the one wanting to kind of participate and play them. Right. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I still don't really understand the, the craze behind um, shoes. In, in, in it's a definitely a nostalgia trap, which is also a lot of the world. Um, getting things that you couldn't have before, which is certainly is part of mine. Like I, I think growing up, I only had one pair of Air Jordans just because my dad was like, I'm not paying $100 for a pair of sneakers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, right. I get it. And so a lot of that is like, I'm making up for lost time. Mm-hmm. Fair. Fair. Um, do you have, I want to stay in this vein of politics for a little longer. Do you have ideas on uh, tax policy? Do I have ideas on tax policy? Yes, Mr. Ajo. Do you have ideas? So you start off with like, name the best movie ever, name the best actor ever off the top of my head. And now we go to give me your best tax policy. Yeah. All over the place. Um, Tax the fucking rich. Is that a good tax policy? Fair. Yeah. Um, Corporations should pay taxes. Um, we should no longer have tax loopholes, which should allow you to hide your money on companies on islands, people on islands. I don't know if you ever read up on that. I think it was the Panama Papers it was based off of, which was a bunch of leaked papers, which showed how many rich people and rich corporations were hiding their money in shell corporations to avoid paying taxes, which included people all over the globe, which included my wife's from Ireland, from Dublin, which included Bono and all of you too, which was quite the shock to the small island of Ireland. Um, But it just goes to show how, and it's, you know, if I had $20 million, what would I do with my money? Would I do that same thing? That's a great question. But tax the fucking rich, close the loopholes. That's my tax policy. It's really Uh, basic to start because I'm not smart enough to know the minutiae. but yeah, we're a really rich country and we have a real hard time taking care of people. And that's a lot with incompetence and poor management, but also a lot with people are just hoarding the money. I agree. I, it seems like common sense to me. We are a very rich country. So why is there so much po- poverty? Why can't we get um, health care for everyone? Yeah. Why can't we do simple things like that? Um, well, the people deciding all the money things are the people that have all the money. And so that's the problem that we have to wedge in. And that goes to lobbyists and all that shit. So it's, I wish it was as easy as me saying tax the rich, but it's not. It's not. Yeah, it's very, very complicated. Um, and I have, I know my elders are not going to, appreciate this, but I've basically lost faith in uh, the voting process. Um, I remember one year I was ready to pay attention to the local elections and I was ready to read all of the, um, what do you call them? The uh, propositions. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, so I got the book, I started reading the propositions and I was reading it. And in this proposition, you're probably like, you know, five or six sentences. And it's like, even within those five or six sentences about this proposition, there's like contradiction. There's like loopholes built into these five or six sentences. It's like, oh yeah, we're going to do this and this and this, unless we don't want to. It's like, okay. 
So I decided to go to the website for that proposition. And that proposition is like 30 pages long, single space. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do you expect me to get a genuine understanding of this proposition through the five or six sentences that you sent me in this little pamphlet? And then there's, you know, if there's 15, 20 propositions at 30 pages each, it's like, who has the real time to invest into all of that? And even, and even them being, again, they're, they're uh, contradictive in themselves. So there's just, there's so much leeway built in, so many loopholes built into each proposition. So I was like, I don't feel like this is, I can have an effect even if I vote. Yeah, I mean, it's hard because there's a motive for everything. And a lot of times, especially with the propositions and politics, the motive isn't uh, take care and have a fair balance for everyone an opportunity for everyone or do the right thing. That's just not the motive for most of it, which uh, it should be, but the world is complex, but it's hard to figure out what's bullshit and what's not. And sometimes you do have to comb through a lot of details uh, to get the right information to make the right choice. But some of the voting thing in our democratic process is fairly easy, I would say, uh, especially when it comes to certain presidential elections, which um, this last one is a fairly easy choice, even though I personally wouldn't agree with a lot of Biden policies or and I'm not a registered Democrat. I will probably never be because I feel that two party system is foolish, but I'm certainly not fucking voting for a Republican in this day and age. And I don't see that changing unless I have a major head injury or they wake up and have some sort of come to Jesus moment because they apparently really believe in the guy, but they don't bother listening to anything that he uh, reportedly said. Mm -hmm. um, but it, I think it all kinds of, you know, if you vote locally is important, but I think in your everyday life, it's every, every decision that you make comes down to is this right or wrong to a certain degree. And it's, you know, do, do the right thing. And there's gray area in that. And that comes to like, I've had to have difficult conversations with my family in terms of what their politics, if you want to even call it politics, are in terms of who they're voting for. And I've discovered QAnon supporters in my family. And so that became a thing of like, what's my responsibility in this? And I think my responsibility is to a certain degree, I can't affect what's happening in Washington, DC too, too much, right? I can't affect what's happening in the UN, but what I can take care of is my fucking backyard, which is get your responsibility, right? The city will come by and if your lawn looks like shit, they'd be like, you got garbage all over your lawn, you need to take care of your lawn. So in a certain degree, my responsibility is to take care of my backyard. And that means taking care of all my personal decisions, you know, thinking and talking with my wife about decisions, which mutual decisions that we have to make decisions that she makes. And also when it comes to my family or where I grew up, I need to be like, that's bullshit if it's bullshit. And I think that's the smallest way that you can kind of make sure that you're affecting things. And I think that grows, grows bigger and bigger because you will affect other people who will then look at things in a difference between, well, what's the right thing and what's the wrong thing to do here. And I've said goodbye to certain members of my family because I have friends that are more family than they are and they're just relatives now because there's a direct conflict of what they think about who my friends are based upon their religion or the color of their skin or whatever bullshit that they're consuming. And it, it just gets to the point was like, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to be around you. I don't feel comfortable around you. And I've told other parts of my members of my closer family, it's like, I don't think you should 
uh, talk to them much, much more than you absolutely have to. And that's difficult because they're siblings. <laughs> that, <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah, that is, that is tough, but I think you're absolutely right. You got to like take care of your own backyard. You have to call yeah. bullshit on like, and that's probably the best place to do it. Cause I think most people probably aren't in a place where they're ready to call bullshit on their colleagues or their, you know, most of their social circles, but within your family, you should have at least enough uh, security to call bullshit on them. Cause I mean, yeah. you know, it's like at the end of the day, you know, it's still all love. And even if it does mean that you need to separate for a while, you it's like, well, no, this is how I feel. And you have to be able to call bullshit on people that are in your close circle, at least. Otherwise, like, what type of circle is it if you can't have those yeah. open, open and honest conversations? But that's even a thing that you have to deal with with the people that you work with to a certain degree, right? Because you don't have a choice of that. If, if you're not the boss, you don't have a choice of who you work with. And we worked together for a long time. And I'm sure we both can identify people that we didn't like or enjoy or respect, but we still had to have a relationship with them. And so like for me personally, and maybe to the detriment of my career that I have made choices of like my relationship with you person that I just work with is going to be purely business. I'm not going to pretend to be friends, pretend to be friendly or pretend that I want to go out with you after work. And that's my signaling to you. Like this is, this is important, uh, putting our relationship in this small box and it's not outside of that already. And I think a lot of people, because they want to be liked or because they want friends send mixed messages, which doesn't allow the people who are, let's say making mistakes morally or whatever to not question what they're doing. And it just goes off uh, on a bad road until you get to the point of like, Oh dude, you're really messed up right now. Are you okay? <laughs> right. Right. Mm, so, so that, that, Brings me back to two questions. I mean, uh, number one about like how much we're we're acting uh, in in life, you know, just trying to make everyone feel comfortable or whatever. Like, do you have like a a spidey sense that you can see when somebody's like being genuine genuine with you or not? Can you? Is that something that you can kind of tell pretty easily? Yeah, not to say that that's not wrong sometimes, but yeah, I mean, gone are the days that you trust doctors, lawyers, or policemen because just the job that they had, which was another thing growing up is like, respect the police, respect lawyers. Like why, why the doctor could be a maniac. He could have brains that he's cut out of people in his basement. I don't know why you would do that, but he could. He could. Um, So yeah, you really have to not be rude to somebody, obviously, but yeah, you see a lot of people and you're like, okay, I think you're full of shit. All right. Well, we'll continue this later. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to be around you. Um, but right now I have to be. So have a good day. Because honestly, even though you're a shit person, I want you to have a good day. And hopefully you wake up and stop being a shit person. Right. Exactly. Good vibes. Got to send them good vibes yeah. anyways. But if I see somebody like that, I'm like, nope. Uh, next. See you later. Because <laughs> it's really hard to form a connection with another human being. It really, really is. And I think when you find that, it's a little bit of magic. And you need to keep that around in terms of, you know, friends creatively anything like i've had i've had a lot of friends especially in the creative side where i knew next to little about the actual data of their lives like where they grew up all their siblings but we would get together and there would just be some connection and we would do just constantly do bits and never stop talking and just seem like there's some sort of mind meld and i think that's just 
absolutely magic. So why would I waste my time on someone who's a chauvinist dick or something like that, which is really common. Right. Um, it's like, why would I waste my time hanging around with someone like that? Eventually that person will be left, hopefully will be left isolated and be like, why am I alone? Why does no one like me? I hate women. Why does no one like me? God, women are the worst. I just don't get why people don't want to hang around with me. Like, that's, that's the goal is to get those person isolated in a corner with a <laughs> bottle of empty alcohol questioning their lives and their decisions. Fair. I, yes, I definitely a couple of people come to mind when you did that. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, because you grew up in Michigan, right? I grew up in Michigan. Okay. Yep. Northern up- Michigan. Very, very rural. Northern Michigan. So can you... And how many years have you been in LA? I've been in LA for nine years now. Okay. I was in Chicago in the, the middle bit. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. So Michigan, Chicago, LA. Have you noticed a difference in like how people interact between all of those places? Yeah. I mean, there's the stereotypical ones. And I think certain stereotypes exist because at least they're partially true. I mean, and most of those don't have to be hurtful, but that's what stereotypes are. Like I'm a white guy. I'm not a particularly good dancer. You know, that's a stereotype that does exist. There's a Come lot on, of white Dan, people. I've seen you dancers. move. You've got some moves. I mean, I've got some rhythm, but I'm not a good dancer. <laughs> uh, check with my choreographer on a chorus line when I was in college, not a good dancer. I had to show up an hour and a half before rehearsal to, to be, to look somewhat competent. And then I was put in the back corner anyway um I was, I was so bad it made me so angry you know like when you can't do something and you can't figure it out and you get so upset especially when you're in your early 20s and yes. you just feel like you should be able to do everything anyway what was the question um, <laughs> the question was have you been able to notice the uh the differences in how people interact between like michigan chicago la oh yeah I mean, Michigan's an entirely different animal already. I mean, I think it, a lot of it has to do with like finding your people with similar interests and similar likes or similar points of view on the world. And that gets harder when you're getting older. So I don't know if I'm able to speak on that for the last five years because I'm kind of getting to this age where my you know, social pool becomes smaller and smaller as people move away or have kids or it's hard to make newer friends, but I think Chicago and LA is the most interesting part of that discussion. I think there definitely is a difference between those two cities and and the people and the area, I think for sure. Um, I think the stereotype, I think the stereotype of LA being an industry town is, is very, very true where I'm not the type of person to like self-promote or tell you these things that I'm doing. And then also 20% exaggerate what it is. And that's just, that's just, what this town is built on to try to, you know, market yourself, give yourself press, make yourself talked about, which is all social media is now there's, you want to call a lot of the stuff as content. No, it's just people desperate for attention. They're not interacting with anybody. They're not discovering anything. A lot of it's just copying each other. Um, and I think even the creative side of those two towns, like I haven't obviously lived in Chicago for a long time, but it seemed like uh, when I was there, a lot of people were just really interested in the work and mm-hmm. because there wasn't people coming to see your shows, it was very, very rare that Lauren Michaels would be in town. So most of the time you're just doing shows or improv shows or sketch shows for other people. And you're just like, we just want to make this show 
the best as it can be. And we're trying to learn. Whereas I think here in LA, it's like, I want to be seen so I can have an opportunity. And so you just have the wrong motives um, to do what you're doing. Mm. In terms of the people, I think people are kind of the same everywhere. There's a lot of rich, shitty areas in Chicago with, I mean, they, they call it, what is it? think Viagra Triangle there's this area in Chicago where it's just like a bunch of old rich people specifically old men it's just like a lot of shops and fancy restaurants and it's just like this is kind of gross and weird I don't like it like I don't I wish you could cut out Beverly Hills from Los Angeles and just put it in fucking Orange County or wherever the fuck they really want to be I have no (laughs) use for Beverly Hills whatsoever that is so real that is so funny because <laughs> yeah. it is just this place that take out all of it i don't care what it costs gavin newsom here it is this is to get i'm sure gavin newsom is watching gavin newsom just cut out beverly hills and ask them where they want to go increase my taxes and just move them there and then we'll put like like nice cool theaters and art stuff and places where people can afford to live there I've never even thought of it like that, but you're absolutely right. It's like Beverly Hills wants nothing to do with Los Angeles at all. And Los Angeles wants nothing to do with Beverly Hills. <laughs> that is great. I Be in Orange County. I did enjoy Orange County, though. I loved Orange County. I thought Orange County was great. It seems like yeah, there just wants But to the more, it's like, again, you dig for the details of something. And I, if you stay in Orange County for a couple weeks longer, you'd be like, this shit's really creepy. Like there's some real under, like I haven't been in Orange County all that much, so I can't really speak on it, but it just seems like you peel a couple layers back and you're like, okay, this is not the place I thought it was. This is not the place they're advertising it to be. What do you mean? Tell me more. Tell me more. Cause I don't know. It's, it I mean, Orange County is, is typically a little bit more Republican sided, I mm-hmm. believe. Mm-hmm. It's, it's typically more money. It's typically slightly more. I would say probably Caucasian, but again, I don't have these data or figures mm-hmm. and that's a bad combination. If you have an area that's um, money and predominantly Caucasian, not cool. Same thing <laughs> with Santa Monica. Santa Monica, I'm not a huge fan of. What? Santa Monica's great too. Now there's part of Santa Monica that are great, but as I walk down, you know, certain streets, I, it feels like I'm walking down the same street with a Starbucks and a Gap and just a lot of people who are Instagramming things. That it, sounds it, like LA in general. I th- but I think, I think the more you learn about LA and see different neighborhoods, I think there's more interesting things there. Fair, fair, yes. In terms of the arts. And I think that's the, that's the one thing of LA that's, you'd hope that that would show itself a little more, but again, it's so dominated by money that it's hard to embrace the artistic side of, of things without being like how much money can i wring out of this thing right (laughs) and so going back to the point about you said you think that a lot of people in la it's like they have the wrong motives for doing what they're doing in in chicago um they seem to be more passionate about the work they're more interested in the work itself i think to a certain degree but i think a lot of those chicago people eventually are like okay now i need to make some money and they move to new york or la and that's absolutely (laughs) the truth and that's the absolutely reason i'm in la too like you no matter what you choose to do, you need to hunker down and just be consumed by it, right? Like if, if, you're, if you're following a craft or a career that you're like, I really, really love this, you need to be absolutely consumed by it for a certain period of years, which is kind of how the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours kind of thing fits in. Like you need to do 
all your energy into this one thing to be good at. And I think that's the one good thing that Chicago has. It's like, we're just all in our twenties and we want to learn how to be funny or learn how to be good actors in the theater. And then once you feel like you, you have that education, you're like, okay, now I need to kind of realize that this is also a bit of a business or I need, if this is what I want to do for a living, I need to go where there is the ability to make money. And it's not in Chicago, unfortunately, Hmm. um, to do it full time. And so people end up moving to New York or LA. Interesting, interesting. And like based off of your experience in the industry, how many rough approximation, you know, uh, how many people do you think that are in LA and working in entertainment? How many of them do you think are actually from LA versus how many people do you think are implants to LA? I don't know. I mean, there's, it seems like a lot of implants. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the people that were born here and born in the industry have a huge leg up. That's the one thing that I've learned uh, and continue to learn that, you know, if it's nepotism or if it's, you know, you know, somebody who works at this particular show that you can get brought in, that's honestly, it feels like 60%, 75% of the battle. Really? Because you can, yeah, it's, it's either who you know and then also a lot of luck on that and the talent is really the third portion or it's the really, really talented people who spend all their time grinding and becoming the best that they can that get that luck, that opportunity. And then that propels them. It's a, it's a combination of those three things. And I think a lot of the time it's really the most, the biggest factor of those three is who, you know, it really is. Really? That's so disappointing. I mean, we always hear that, you know, it's all about who, you know, it's all about who, you know, but it's so disappointing that, you can be the most talented person on the block and still not get a shot. Yeah. You know, cause there's just, everyone's, everyone's so busy. Like if you look at casting offices, which is kind of like the first place that you can, if you, if you get a good relationship with a casting office and they like you as an actor, they will keep bringing you back. And more likely than not, they will, if they feel confident in your talent and your professionalism, they will keep trying to put you in things. And so a lot of times it's, you have to be brought into that casting office by somebody or have an agent that has a good direct relationship where in LA that's really tough because there's so many people and so many people are behind schedule. And so like, they don't have time to be like, you know, today I want to look at five actors that I've never heard of or seen before. They don't have the time. They have to cast 20 people in this show that films next week. And so they're just like working really fast Uh... Um, because it's a business. And that's, that's okay, but it's finding the people that are like, I'm aware that it's a business, but I'm also aware that we're dealing with humans and people and we're trying to create something that I don't, we're not trying to sell soap, but we definitely want people to watch it and pay for it. But we want, you know, it to be good. So people talk about it because it has value and it has nutrients for your soul or for, to give you a break from your day for two hours. Those are all valuable things that makes a lot of sense now because i mean i used to get so frustrated um because i would you know be scrolling through instagram just seeing some phenomenal singers phenomenal singers and just thinking about some of the content that's on the radio it's like yeah these guys are okay and most of it's electronically manipulated to make them seem better it's like there's just so much talent out there but it does make a lot of sense when you put it like that it's just like they're just so busy it's like well we have to go with what we're familiar with 
or like who somebody we know just to find is somebody to, to fill the role because it's just about putting out so much content. And it feels like there has to be a downside of that that you maybe you're aware of because there is a demand for so much of a quantity of uh, material that a lot of the quality kind of takes a backseat. Absolutely. And I think this industry as well has the same problems of uh, um, large gaps in the economics of the people that a lot of the rest of the world does. One thing that's annoying me recently, and it goes back to when I was in Chicago, I was, uh, I did an audition for a Minute Maid orange juice. And how the, how the audition process typically works is you do the audition. If they like you, you know, say they audition hundred people, they take, they pick out 20 people that they like, and they have a callback. And so those 20 people are at the callback, then they narrow it down to say three or four after that. And then if you're in that three or four, they put you on hold. So they say, hold your schedule for this date. We may want to use you. We will let you know in the next couple of days. So you don't accept any other work for that particular day because you're on hold. So this particular orange juice commercial, they were looking for an improviser, which is great. Tons of Chicago improvisers. I'm really good at that sort of commercial improvised thing. They were looking for a Ty Burrell type, which was the father on Modern Family, who's a- Okay, yeah. Yeah, really funny guy. So they were looking for a Ty Burrell type. So I was like, I, I know exactly what they wanted. They allowed me to improvise in the audition. I felt really, really good. I was on hold. So I knew I was down to like the last two or three, maybe four, depending on what they're looking for. Um, I got called that I didn't get it. And typically you don't know who gets it. If it's someone from your town, they may have seen someone in LA, but sure enough, three or four months later, I see the commercial and guess who's in it. It's Ty Burrell. Um, <laughs> and that's great. They got what they were looking for. I don't know if they were using everybody else as like a, a negotiation piece. They really get Ty Burrell, but also does Ty Burrell need to be doing a Minute Maid commercial after five years of being on a sitcom and probably making, I don't know, 150, 200 K an episode because I fucking really need this minute made commercial so I can pay bills and do all that. And that's another problem that's happening with this industry that, and these companies want these big names, but a lot of times it's just for voiceover work. Like Rashida Jones, I think is the voice for Expedia or one of these travel things. And every time I hear it, it makes my fucking skin crawl because I love Rashida Jones. She's great. She doesn't need that job. She has a very successful career through uh, movies, TV. Her father is mm -hmm. pretty well known and has a good chunk of money probably waiting for her. Mm -hmm. um, she doesn't need this Expedia job um, versus, do you know how many thousands of people in Los Angeles really, really need all those jobs? It's a right. lot. Um, right. I forget what the original question is, but here we are again, where I trailed off. No, but um, this is absolutely fascinating because you're absolutely right. They're, Cause like these huge names that are already set in the industry, it's like, so what are you doing to the, the rest of these pool, the pool of people who need just a little more cash flow, like a diversity of just um, a diversity of uh, people just like, and, and what is it? It's like, do we think that because Rashida Jones is voices on Expedia that that's going to sell more than Joe Blow? Um, like, is, it, is there that much data to support that? And how many people are really recognizing her name? Like she's, she's fairly famous, but if I ask my mom who lives in Michigan, who Rashida Jones is, she'd probably say, oh, she works at the post office, doesn't she? And I'm like, no, no. Um, so it's like, what is that voice doing? And it's, it happens a lot on 
commercials, like I'll recognize the voice. I don't know how many other people do, but it's like, that's a job that someone else needed. And for, for a period of time, it at least felt to me that the industry was, that's how you climb the ranks. You know, you start out by doing small local regional commercials to get your experience, know what a set is like, know what working with a director is like, know what being professional prepared is like. And you, you, slowly climb the ranks and in, in the world of commercials and you get a one-line thing on tv you learn what those sets are like and your roles can slowly grow from there and that just doesn't seem to be the reality if it ever was one or it just doesn't exist at all but that seems like the way it almost should be um but there's no there's no mayor of hollywood being like actor not an actor sorry you have to move back to ohio Sorry. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's a fair, that's a open market capitalistic system, right? But we also have learned that that actual capitalism system is also very well organized and not fair for everybody. So indeed, it's definitely hence not. Hollywood, hence Hollywood. Uh, I was going to ask you something else about acting. Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, I've been in sales for a while. And in sales, you have to hear no quite a bit. And I, and like, I can't imagine how stressful that would be like to go in for an interview and they're like, okay, keep this day open. And so you can't fill it with anything and you got to put your life on hold for that one space. And then you're still told no. So like in, in your industry, I, I feel like that's a part of the job, like thickening your skin because you're told no pretty frequently. You're going, you're constantly going up and to subject yourself to this uh, type of criticism in which somebody either accepts or rejects you. So like, how do you manage that? I think it's probably tougher when you're younger. I think, I mean, I think some people still have more problems with it. I could really give a shit less if someone tells me no, because at least I had the opportunity to be like, Hey, what about me? I can do this thing. Look at this dance. I can do a voice. And if they say no, I'll be like, okay, I, I hopefully I have two or three more of those. I will take as I will take a dozen no's a day. I don't care. I know because either I'm not right for that role there. Maybe they found someone else that they like more. Maybe they're right. Maybe they're wrong. Or maybe they had to cut that role, whatever it is. I know there's a lot of different circumstances. Um, and maybe that's because I have a little bit more, anybody who has a little bit more experiences knows that there's a lot of different decisions purely like, oh, they don't like my face which is kind of what it feels like for a number of years. Or like, I'm not good enough. I was like, I know that I'm good enough, but I also know there's a lot of different circumstances that are helping me or hurting me or not enabling me to get every single job that I want or that I go up for. And sometimes it makes no sense. Like, I think as you get older, you become more comfortable with yourself and who you are and what your skill set is, or maybe you've developed yourself a little bit more. So, you know, I'm a late bloomer in a lot of different aspects. Um, we don't need to go into the high school locker room stuff with my pubic hair, but if we want to, we can. No, no, that's okay. Um, we, we can skip that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but even now it's like, it's taken me, it's taken me a long time to figure out what my corner of this sort of artistic and business world is and what I'm best suited for. So a lot of times when I get an audition, I almost want to say, it's like, I don't want to do this because it's just, it's not right, but you have to take every opportunity that you can because you can't tell your agent who, may or may not have worked hard to get you that audition be like, yeah, I don't want to do that. But sometimes it feels like, like there was one audition that I had in Chicago very, very early on 
I was maybe 25, 26. It was for a video game. It was going to be a mocap video game where they put the little balls on you and yeah. the thing. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted improvisers to come in and play a bunch of different characters. And they were basically, it was basically for like a DC video game, but they couldn't use the name. So you had to pretend to be the Joker or Superman and all. And so they made me do the stupidest shit I had ever have to do in an audition. And I just felt so dumb. And if I had the ability to get really embarrassed, I would have been really, really embarrassed. But after that, I was like, I never want to do that sort of thing again, where they don't know what they're looking for. They don't give you clear things to do. And you just feel stupid. And like, that's a waste of your time. And something like, I'm not the right person for this. Mocap me in whatever suit that you want. I'm not going to jump around and be able to do like ninja kicks and stuff. It's like, be better at your job. So you don't have to waste your time by having me come in and do this. But doesn't that kind of go against the idea of take every opportunity that comes? Yeah. And that's what I did. But like looking back, it's like you can see that they weren't prepared and they weren't knowing what they're looking for. And maybe even the casting office figured that out and be like, yeah, we might not work with them again. Right. Um, because sometimes you have to say no to money. I've, I mean, I've, I have turned down auditions and they've been for uh, the military and for like Republican national conventions. Like Mm. you get a lot of those, especially the military when you're at a certain age. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not selling some kid because I got those same phone calls in high school, the year that you graduate from all the different branches. You're like, what are you doing for your future? Like, fuck off. I'm not fucking flying your plane or whatever you want me to do. Right. Um, And so I'm not doing that to some kid who's, you see some of the commercials now, like there's one now where it tries to make it like a video game. Like, and at the end it's like Marines. I'm like <laughs> that's weird <laughs> oh wow that's but it's so cool to to know that like you have a um a standard and you're like no i'm not crossing that line that's just it's too much it's too it's against what you like stand for or what you believe in so it's like you're, you're just not going to do it just for an yeah. extra dollar um and i think you said something really important about like you know that you're good enough and you know that there are a lot of other variables that sometimes play into whether or not you get a role and you're okay with that. You factored all of that in and you're like, okay, well, I know I'm good enough for this role, but there are probably a lot of things that you are not aware of uh, that are probably playing against you. Mm-hmm. And you've just, you've become okay with that. Um, do you, how long have you, had that mentality of knowing that you're good enough for the for in in the industry i think you have to have that bit of foolishness no matter what in any sort of creative or even sports i think is another one where it's like these aren't really jobs you know what i mean like if the world went to shit and life as we know it crumbled there's not going to be a bunch of TV shows on Netflix. You know what I mean? Like there's going to be some guy that goes around to village to village and does a show, which has always existed. Um, So I know that this whole thing is a little bit foolish and we are just playing pretend, but you have to take it seriously. But I knew to a certain degree that I had some sort of, I felt like I, uh, I had this creative side to me and this energy that I've, felt I didn't know what to do with it at a young age because it just wasn't a thing in my world that existed. Like if I was a 14 year old growing up in Los Angeles versus growing up in Michigan, where 
my father was a bread salesman and my mother was a, a housewife. Growing up in Los Angeles as a 14 year old, I would have got so many more opportunities purely because the place I was at, or, you know, maybe my father was a producer, which we don't know what the fuck they do, you know, but <laughs> I would be in an entirely different place right now as a 42 year old. And I believe that a hundred percent because just the circumstances of where I was, which again, it's just about opportunity, right? And opportunity can be blocked for a whole bunch of reasons based on where you live, who, you know, what the color of your skin is, what your religion, like all these things, which are right and wrong to a certain degree, we have to realize that whatever we can do, we have to give people opportunities. And so I realized and denied it for a long time until I kind of got in college and I just jumped into an acting class and I did stand up for the first time. And you just feel that uh, intensity within you. Um, it's a rush. It absolutely is a rush. And, and you feel like you're taken away for the moment, like anything you can find in your life to do where you're not looking at your watch or not looking at the, the time, I think it's something you need to keep following because there's, there's a certain few things and basketball is one of them. I don't care what time it is. I'm playing basketball. You know what I mean? I'm not looking at the time. I'm not looking at the time when I'm writing or on a set, I'm locked into that and you just disappear. And if you can also find something where you disappear into and it creates something for someone else as well, not just like I could get really fucking high and disappear, but that's, what is that doing? You know, I, if I can create something and give something to someone as well, be it an emotion, an idea, an experience, a look inside to something else, that's what I really enjoy. And that's kind of what I'm chasing. And I think I'm, I don't know how good I am at it in the aspect of the world. Like there's, there's people that are way more talented than me at a lot of this. But I think me as an individual, I'm an individual. I'm not trying to copy what I see on TV, what this person does, what that person does. You know, you get a lot of comparisons in your life and you try to chase comparisons. I was a huge Jim Carrey fan for a very, very long time in my youth. And there's a, there's a part of me, like he was a teacher. I chased after certain things he did and he certainly influenced me. But as you get older, I realize I'm an entirely different machine than, than him is, that he is because because of his past experiences, which are way more traumatic than mine, uh, as well as, you know, my life, I've been able to like live a life and not be sucked out of like, I've been married, I have my in-laws, like I'm able to call on these normal experiences that everybody has and not be like this Hollywood A-lister who's secluded in a house, who's no longer able to live life, which I think is a lot of times what's, what happens to like these really, really famous people where they you're, everyone's all of a sudden is like, yeah, they're not good anymore. And it's like, yeah, because they're not living life. They're not having experiences anymore. You know, people give shit to Eddie Murphy for years after he became super, super famous. And it's like, yeah, he's, he can't go outside. He can't have genuine interactions with people without them wanting something anymore. And that, that makes it really hard to express things because then you're just expressing what your life is. And that's like, I don't know, should I get that pink giraffe or should I get the normal color giraffe for the birthday party? Like, that's just not relatable. Um, so yeah, that started as a question is when did I know when I was able to do this or if I had talent and it just spiraled again. I'm <laughs> just a spiraling maniac. The spiraling but I think I always had, I always had the idea, but you're always confronted of, and it's, and I think this last year with everybody being locked indoors, you're confronting a lot of your demons or what you want to do with your life. And there were certainly aspects and constantly have been aspects of like, 
am I doing the right thing? You know, do I still want to do this? Is this the right thing for me and my wife and my future? Always. And you kind of, every day I kind of ask myself that, but I find the creative stuff so fulfilling and I've learned so much about myself and other people. Like I wouldn't ever want to say goodbye to that. And if it eventually it someday does mean where, I mean, I've been living my life for the most part, having a day job and doing this stuff kind of on the side, you know, different percentages, 75% day job, 25% acting, 50% day job, 50% acting, depending on the year, that might just be the rest of my life. And I think, I think I'm okay with that because I still get to, to do one of the things that fulfills me and that has taught me who I am kind of. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is so, so important. I think that's probably the best maybe indicator that people can use on if it's something they should pursue. And it's like, what is it that you're doing in which you forget to look at your clock? You forget to look at the time. Like that's probably the simplest and, and most important aspect of whether or not you should pursue something. It's like, can you get lost in the activity? You know, and I'm probably going to ask people that question more often now because it's like, what are you doing where you just have no interest in anything else? Like you're not worried about what time of day it is or how long you need to divvy out for. It's like, no, you're just going to do it. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people, you know, I'm, I'm, I would assume that a lot of people don't even know what that is yet. Um, or they don't even think about it. I think for a lot of people, that's like grilling on the weekends. You know, like yeah. that in itself, it can be a spiritual experience because I think, and it's mostly guys who are not tend to be in touch with their emotions. I think they're just naturally as they're flipping their steaks or their burgers, they're thinking about things. Mm -hmm. It's unavoidable that you're not, your brain's going to keep moving, but it does give you the stillness, which I think, you know, number one, you're probably away from your screaming kids or whatever, you know, <laughs> golfing, same sort of thing. Yeah. Shoot me in the head if I have to go golfing. I hate golf, but I understand that it's a it's a getaway for people. It's a people that they can bond, that you know, they can focus themselves on this specific act and trying to overcome it, be the better, be the best golfer that you can be. And I think that teaches you about yourself and other things. Same thing with the grill. People find hobbies are important. I think we overlook how uh, important hobbies are, or we'll make fun of people's hobbies, which is fine. The world is you can make fun of the world and we don't need to all take every single thing personally, but people make fun of each other's hobbies and uh, sure. But also fuck you. That's their hobby. That's what they like doing. If someone wants to make a quilt. I'm not going to make a quilt, but someone likes it. Grandma loves making quilts. <laughs> he doesn't want to go see a movie. She's making quilts. She's making quilts. That's her thing. Leave her alone. Yeah. She's making quilts that and, and i think that's an important distinction to make is that like your thing which allows you to get lost in the moment doesn't have to have a uh, a monetary aspect to it you don't have to it doesn't have to be producing anything it's just like what is it that allows you to get lost because i think in today's capitalistic society it's like oh yeah you love this well have you thought about turning it into a money-making machine it's like no yeah. because then that would kind of change it for some people it's great if you can do that but not everybody needs to, but it seems it's really interesting that a lot of conversations attempt to encourage people to turn it into some type of monetary thing. And it doesn't so have to how be. Do you, how do you monetize it? How do right. we make money out of this? Right. Which is fair to a certain degree, but if then that becomes your only motive, and I think that's what a lot of things are. It's like, 
you know, a lot of writers that I have is like, I want to get a show that sells. And I think that's great. You do want that because you want to make a living at it. But then if you're taking your ideas, which could have a pure, interesting place where they start, you know, about the loss of a father or something. But then if you make it into totally something else just to make it to sell, well, you learn, you lose where your original inspiration came from. And I think the more you get into that habit, the more you just, I, I think it loses the point. You know, mm. I think a lot of movies are great to, to Fast and Furious. People love those movies. I think they're stupid as shit, but I understand that they're an escape for people. People like cars and submarines now. I don't know. I don't know where they're going with those, but um, I, I, I don't find that that's not art to me. I think there's artists that work on it. I just don't think that that's, they're not expressing anything about humanity or being a person. I guess I haven't seen them all, so I can't accurately, but I'm, I'm guesstimating. I think you're pretty close to the to yeah. accurate. I think there. they half-assed some family stuff in there, but <laughs> I don't know. Fair, fair. Um, I, and uh, I, I think that's um, that's probably a good note to finish on. <laughs> Me shitting on the Fast and Furious franchise. Dad shitting on the Fast Ever and working with them. And half-assing some of the family <laughs> scenes in that movie. Well, Dan, I appreciate you joining No More Nonversations and chatting with me. I've learned so much about you and about uh, the industry you work in and the world. Um, so hang on. I'm going to end this recording and just hang on for okay. a few minutes. Gotcha. Thanks for having me. You got it.